Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. I don't have the easiest job in the world. I go in and tell the truth. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. This episode is going to be a little different for us in that it's basically a continuation of our last episode on forensic accounting, albeit with a different guest. The clip you heard was from Billy Petty, forensic accounting consultant with Heyman and Associates in Austin, Texas. Michelle Heyman joined us for our last episode, and when we were arranging that, she offered to have us speak with one of her experts, Billy Petty. Billy's background prior to joining the accounting firm was in law enforcement. You're definitely going to hear a few interesting stories, as well as a fresh perspective on forensic accounting as we proceed through the interview. If you enjoyed this episode and somehow didn't catch the prior show, please visit our website at www.whereaccountantsgo.com for the last episode with Michelle Heyman. You'll definitely appreciate that one as well. Here we go with Billy Petty of Heyman & Associates in Austin, Texas. Well, hello, Billy. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. After my interview with Michelle, I I really can't wait to get started with this, actually. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm happy happy to be here. Thank you. Well, this is going to be a real treat for us. I was looking for a forensic accounting expert when I contacted Michelle, and I really appreciate that she shared so much of her own story with us on the the previous episode, but I wasn't anticipating getting a second interview out of that contact, and, and certainly not someone with you know such an extensive background in law enforcement. And for our audience, we recently interviewed Michelle Heyman of Heyman & Associates up in Austin, a firm that handles forensic accounting as well as a few other areas. And she offered to have us speak with our guest today, Billy Petty, as well, so we could go a little deeper with some of the forensic accounting examples. And Billy's been on board with Heyman for about a year and a half and specializes in consulting and their forensic accounting and as well as fraud cases, actually. And prior to joining Heyman, though, Billy worked in law enforcement spending a lot of his career in the white-collar crime area. So this is really going to be a little different broadcast for us. I'm really looking forward to it. So, Billy, it's been a while since we interviewed someone that didn't start their career in accounting, so to speak. But I'd still like to get an idea of sort of what led you to the business side, you know, the white-collar side of law enforcement. How how did you get into that area in the first place? It was purely accidental. I... um... (laughs) It was. I'll tell you, you know, getting into law enforcement to begin with was, was an accident. I, I was working as a helicopter mechanic and got laid off of that job, and I needed something to do. And so I, I applied with the sheriff's department there where I was living at the time, and they gave me a job. And I 
figured out, well, it's okay. I kind of like it. And so I kept going. Wound up applying with the Austin Police Department and worked there for 23 of my 28 years in law enforcement. And I guess it was in 2006, I was teaching at the academy and had been out there for a while and, and figured out the only way I was going to escape the academy as an instructor was to promote. I'd really never been motivated to promote before that, but I decided in 2006 to take the test, and so I, I took the test and scored high and, and promoted right away. And when I promoted, they asked me where I wanted to go. I told them, we're computer forensics, because I had a background in, in IT. Hmm. And they said, well, you're not going to computer forensics. What's your next choice? I said, well, <laughs> put me anywhere except financial crimes. And they said, that's perfect. You're going to financial crimes. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how I got into it. <laughs> so... In the police, in, in the Austin Police Department anyway, financial crimes and white-collar crimes are actually two different units, and financial crimes does, oh, forgeries and credit debit card abuse, identity theft, things like that. And so I, I did that type of work for, I don't know, probably about six months, and they, they said, well, you're doing a good job here. Would you be interested in going to white-collar? And so I, I, I told him, I said, I've never done that kind of work before. I said, I, I had an accounting class in college before I dropped out the first time. And, you know, I, I really don't know how to do that kind of work. And they said, perfect, you're going. So that's, and that's uh, many times the logic of police departments. So they, they put me over in white collar. And it was actually the probably the single biggest career break I've ever had getting put over there. The way that it works with the Austin Police Department, the White Collar Crime Unit investigators are co-located in the district attorney's office. So I was working side by side with the prosecutors that were responsible for the case from the time that it was assigned to us all the way through post-adjudication. And it's called a vertical prosecution model. And so we're responsible for everything from the time that it comes in to the time that everything's done and no other work to do on it. That working with those prosecutors like that and getting the the one-on-one -on -one interaction with them really helped me to learn all of the pieces that was missing from either academic training or other experience that I had and learned about what they really needed in order to prosecute a case. So that was that was huge for me and and most places that are you know most police departments that are working this type of activity don't use that model. They don't have their cops and their prosecutors working that closely with one another. Hmm. And so that was that was a huge, huge benefit to me. And then, of course, you know, a, a bachelor's degree in the you know in this very narrow, specific field that I was working was was helpful too. So that's that's kind of how I got into it. Once I got over to white collar and, and started doing this work, I figured out I really liked it. I, I really enjoyed doing this type of work and and wanted to keep doing it. Interesting. Okay. Okay. How so, did you make your way to the accounting firm? Ah, okay. So I don't remember what year it was. I guess probably 2009 or so, I had joined the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. And again, you know, I was looking oh. for ways to continue my education and to learn more about what it was that I was doing. And it was, I think, the 25th annual convention that the ACFE had, or the Global Fraud Conference. In, they had it in San Antonio, and I begged and pleaded and kicked and screamed until the police department got tired of listening to me and agreed to send me down there to it. 
<laughs> so while I was at the conference, Michelle Heyman, who I'm now working with, she was at the same conference, and, and we, we spent a bunch of time running around, taking some of the same classes and visiting. And Michelle and I had worked on, gosh, at that point, a couple of cases before and had done some presentations together. And so we get to visiting about my my post-law enforcement career, and she suggested that I might be a good fit for coming to the firm. And so that was about 18 months before I retired, actually about two years before I retired. And we started down that path, and uh, the closer that I got to retirement and at the end of 2015, we visited more and more about it, and then I just decided to go ahead and, and make the career change and, and come to the accounting firm, which... I was, yeah, I was a little afraid that I wouldn't have at least the paper credentials to to work in an environment like this, since I'm not a CPA. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, as it turns out, it's not really been an impediment to me. Hmm. Wonderful. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and you've been doing it for a while now. Yeah, I've been here about a year and a half now, and I've had enough cases that I've kind of lost track of how many I've had. So I think I'm off of one hand. Okay. Okay. I know that there's some sensitivity around all this, but are are there any cases that you can share with us in general just to give us an idea of, of what you personally have worked on, whether it's with Heyman Associates or, or, or your law enforcement days? What Yeah. So any, uh-huh. I was working on my C V last year. I testified in a in a lost wages valuation last year and so I was working on my C V going into that and really going back and looking closely at the casework that I'd had and figured out that I had had, I don't remember the number now, but it was over 300 cases that I had, and all of them financial cases that I had investigated, either investigated as lead investigator or had some some role in. So it was actually kind of surprising to me the number of them that I had. When I left the police department, I think my caseload was around $20 million of losses that was on my caseload. And so, you know, I've had obviously a lot of exposure to a lot of different things, and there are some of them that stand out. And fortunately, most of them are, are fairly public record, and I can I can talk about them. Okay. Probably the single most interesting case that I, I worked on was a case involving a, a winning lottery ticket. And <laughs> yeah, the the ticket value was a million and eight dollars, I believe, is what it was. And it was bought by a, a man up in, I think he's in Grand Prairie, he's a guy named Willis Willis. And they, I did an episode on one of the e-network shows hmm, about okay. this. So Willis had bought that ticket and he took it to the convenience store where he, bought, where he made the purchase and, and just handed it to the clerk and asked him if it was a winning ticket. And what we learned was that the clerk told him, oh yeah, you won $2 and gave him $2. <sighs> The ticket was worth a million and six dollars more than that. So the clerk ultimately wound up coming to Austin, turned in the ticket, and claimed the prize. And then a an anonymous complaint was filed with the Lottery Commission. The Lottery Commission took off and investigated, and they did a great job because they were able to go back to the store, looked at the purchase patterns and the particular numbers that were played, and narrowed all of that down to an individual who happened to cash his paycheck, and they were able to tie the winning ticket back to this guy, Mr. Willis. And so we, you know, they, they started investigating it. They, they sent it over to us, and so we picked it up, and we, we ran with it. And we traced the money. Oh, the, money the money went all over the place, and it was coming out in drips and drabs, and, and a lot of it, uh, we believe, was taken offshore. 
But that was an interesting case and had us getting involved with entities like Interpol and Department of State requesting, a, it's called a red notice on, on the, uh, the suspect in that, Pankaj Joshi. And essentially what that is is an international warrant so that if he was, you know, if he was stopped someplace where the U.S. had an extradition treaty that he'd be detained for the U.S. to uh, see about extraditing back to, to the United States. And so that was the one that was probably one of the most interesting insofar as getting to be involved with, you know, something more international and dealing with foreign governments and a lot of, a lot of different agencies within, within the U.S. government. Another interesting one I worked, it really was much less of a financial case, but it was, in fact, it really wasn't an accounting case at all, but it was a lady who was posing as a pharmacist working for a large drugstore chain here in the U.S., and she had convinced them that she had gone to pharmacy school, and they gave her a job as a pharmacist when she had been a pharmacy tech and had never been to pharmacology school. Mm. And so even though that one's not a financial case, we got involved in it because it was a lot of paper intensive and tracking down different things such as, you know, did she or did she not have a degree? Did she go to school here? Was she in the army? Did she do this? And so that one that one was very interesting, but really not a financial case. One of the most fun financial cases I ever worked involved a local Austin attorney. And he had done a lot of things over through life. He you know, he'd been an attorney here in town for a long time. But he'd really kind of narrowed his practice down to doing a lot of mediation, which was his, his mainstay, but he was also serving as guardian ad litem for children who were injured in uh, some type of personal injury event. A lot of them were car accidents. There was one that was related to a sewage spill, but he was, he was involved in representing those children. And so what was happening on that was that when these insurance companies would make a payout for the benefit of the children... That money was supposed to be put on deposit with the either the district clerk's office or the county clerk's office and put into the court registry where it would earn well a market rate of, of interest, which isn't much, but it would earn a little interest and it would be protected. And then when those children turned 18, they would be able to go to the court registry and make a, a, a real easy motion to the court to have the money distributed to them. What was happening was, as the defendant would receive those checks payable to those children, he was running it through his IOLTA account, which is a, it's a lawyer's trust account or, or one of the types of lawyer's trust accounts. Mm-hmm. He would run it through his IOLTA, and then he would start writing checks to himself off of that money, many times showing that it was some type of expense related to the case. Wow. But he wasn't doing any expenses on that because his expenses were paid for by the state. So when those kids would turn 18, many times they would go back to him and tell him, you know, they were 18, they wanted their money. And he would tell them, give me a couple of weeks and I'll get your money. And so then he would just pull some more money out of the account and, and pay those kids with it. So it was kind of like a Ponzi, you know, where he's using new money to pay for the, the first person's money yeah. that, that he held. It was kind of like a Ponzi, but it wasn't a Ponzi because it wasn't an investment scheme. So it's a little bit different. But that one went back over 10 years. And so that's one of the things about this. And one of the things I really enjoy about this type of work is I'm not, look, not generally speaking, I'm not looking at a single transaction. 
for what I was doing at the police department, if it was a single transaction, it wasn't complicated enough and didn't come to me. I only got the ones that were done over a period of time or had some other level of complexity that it needed a specialist. And that's one of the things I enjoy about this is how technical it is, and it's it's putting all the little pieces together to to go back and paint the, the picture of what actually it was that took place. Okay. Those are a couple of them. God, there's so wow. many. And another one of my favorite ones was a lady who was stealing from the Supreme Court of the state of Texas. I can't remember the, the, the dollar amount on that, but it was more than half a million, I think, in total. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to make this more than a two-episode show. It has to be 30 <laughs> or 40, I think. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were 300 of them, and, and probably half of those were fairly interesting. And, you know, 10% of those might have been really cool on some level. But there's been so many, and, you know, every one of them is different. Sure. Well, the the show is is for accountants and those considering the accounting profession. So for someone that maybe is is getting ready to get out of school with an accounting degree or someone that is, you know, thinking about pursuing accounting because they're interested in this field, perhaps, I mean, what what opportunities are there for for those that have already decided, you know, to to get that education? Are, Are opportunities available? There are. There are a lot of different opportunities and a lot of different paths that you can take that might lead you to the same place that I'm at. You know, my path obviously was very, very different because, you know, for the the first 40 years of my life, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't until about 40 years old that I said, hey, this is cool. I want to do this. I'm going to work on that. You know, for somebody who's just coming out of school, then there's still different paths. And so I went a path that took me through law enforcement as a commissioned police officer at a local level, but there's also federal law enforcement. And so one of the big differences between being a local police officer and a federal agent of some sort is the federal agencies are more likely to put you directly into a job like that. So if you wanted to be a forensic accountant and be a be a commissioned officer someplace, going to the federal agency might let you do forensic accounting from day one as opposed to being a local police officer where in almost every jurisdiction you're going to have to work, you know, patrol for a while. And I worked patrol for nine years before I went to the academy as an instructor and then I worked out there for another eight years before I promoted and became a detective and and started doing this type of work. And even you know, even once I became a detective and you know, had I wanted to go right into this I still had to sit over there in the in the financial crimes unit and prove my value to them there and that I could work those cases before they'd give me something more complicated. So, you know, that's a couple of ideas. Looking at if somebody who doesn't want to be a commissioned officer someplace, which what you're going to find with commissioned officers is they're carrying a good gun. You know, they've, they've got a job where where that's part of what they do is the actual enforcement you know, I, I work with a lot of different folks over at the state, and there's alphabet soup of state and federal agencies that are more regulatory and, and less enforcing. At least they're not enforcing criminal laws, or they're not commissioned officers that are enforcing criminal laws or regulators who may make a, a criminal referral, but a lot of times they're just doing an administrative action. And there are those opportunities there. I work with CPAs and pretty much all levels of government that are 
part of our investigative process one way or another. And in, in fact, in the White Collar Crime Unit, we had two CPAs on staff that were our financial analysts hmm. that we would get the bank records in, we would get the company books in, and they were there to help us go through and work those numbers and come up with a picture from a financial perspective of what took place. Were they full-time employees of the department, or were they yes. consultants? Yes, they were. They, oh. yeah, both, both of the CPAs we had on staff were employees of the district attorney's office, and they were full-time employees. Okay. And so there, you know, there's opportunities like that. And then I, you know, I worked with CPAs that were part of the state auditor's office or the comptroller's office. I don't think I worked with any, any person that was a, actually a CPA at the attorney general's office, but I would bet they have them in there. I just didn't run across them. That's a pretty big office. Okay. You know, so there, there's a lot of opportunities from a government perspective of getting into this. And of course, then, you know, somebody straight out of, out of college that goes and, and sits for the exams and, and gets the CPA license, they could just jump straight off into this. The problem with that is a lot of times you wind up having to testify as an expert and just straight out of college with no real Besides the, the required internship, no, no other real underpinning of, of developing an expertise, it might be hard to sell it that way. Okay. Okay. What, what, what are some of the traits? What are your thoughts on some of the traits that it would take to be successful? So if, if uh, I'm an accountant thinking about getting into this, I mean, what, what should I be looking at in myself to say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I could do that, or hmm, that might not be for me? <laughs> well, you know, one of the, of course, I'm having now been with a public accounting firm for only a year and a half, and I don't know how many hours of accounting I went up with in college, but we touched on, you know, all the AICPA and the guidance that you receive from the other entities that are related to accounting. And out of all of that, the one thing to me, and this is actually very appealing, one of the most fundamental pieces of that is independence. And that's probably one of the biggest traits that I could say is necessary is being independent, not only from the, the perspective of we don't have a conflict of interest, but not passing judgment. You stand back, you look at the numbers, you report what happened, what, you, what, what the documentation, the supporting documents, the numbers, the bank statements, whatever it is, whatever that's telling you, you report that and try not to infer too much from it. One of the caveats that comes from the ACFE is that certified fraud examiners are prohibited from judging whether a person is guilty or not guilty of a fraud. Okay. And so that's that's really what I'm talking about is having that trait of being able to say, okay, I see $450,000 coming from the company account going straight into your account. Is that criminal? Depends on why it went. Mm-hmm. It's not my job to decide whether or not it's criminal. It's my job to ferret out what the transactions were, to ferret out why they happened, but somebody else decides whether or not that was a criminal act or not a criminal act or if there's a civil liability or not civil liability on it. That's one of the biggest traits that I can say. I see people get wrapped up all the time, and they are anti-fraud. They are there to fight for the victim. Mm, My job's okay. not to fight for the victim. My job's to report what happened and why it happened. That's one of the, the, the traits. I mean, other things, you know, just a detail-oriented and very, very patient. 
these things can drag out for years, and you've got to be very, very patient. I sat last night from probably 6 to 9 o'clock going through bank statements, looking at checks and just putting them into a spreadsheet so that I could go back and run a pivot table and say well, these are what the aggregates were for, for these different checks. And that's, you know, so that's a laborious, tedious process, and you've got to have a tolerance for that. Hmm. Okay. You know, when you were talking about independence earlier, would, would another way to say that be objectivity, you know, not being subjective? Right. And, okay. you know, a, a lot of times, particularly when it comes to application of the law, which we're not lawyers, and that's their job to apply it and interpret it, but we still have to work within that framework. And so many times that framework's subjective depending on what your orientation is or where you stand or what information you have available to you. You have to make a subjective determination. But we don't want to be subjective. We want to be objective. We want to have a framework that we can compare what we're seeing to and then say this is what it is. And that's why I go back to, I'm not the easiest job in the world. I go in and tell the truth. Okay. But yeah, you're right. We do want to be very objective in what we do and not be subjective. I paused there because I'm writing that down. I have the easiest job in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I tell the truth. Yes. I say that, that and it's it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek because I had that argument with an attorney one day about how easy my job was because all I had to do was tell the truth. And their whole point was, is you tell the truth as you know it, but is it the truth? Mm. Well, that's why they're an attorney. See? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and those are kind of abstract arguments I enjoy. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wanted to make sure I didn't, you know, just paint this this rosy, exciting outlook without showing the other side as well. Because I, I want to be realistic, and, and I think it would be disrespectful, frankly, for those doing the job not to recognize that there may be some danger occasionally as well. I mean, what what are some of the more dangerous situations you've been in? Oh, okay. So let me let me kind of start with two different sides to this. You know, one from the law enforcement perspective, which I think everybody is is likely to agree is more dangerous than the public accounting side of it. You know, the the public accounting side of it. I've, April fourteenth is a very dangerous time for for CPAs. That's right. <laughs> You know, it depends on if the taxpayer owes or not. Yeah. Well, that's that's true, and yeah, and how big of a surprise it is to them. Yeah. So doing what I'm doing now, what I what I feel is that the relative danger level is far lower than what I was doing two years ago. You know, typically now I'm. It's pretty rare for me to directly interface with somebody who's been accused of wrongdoing. I, I do still do it. Most of the time, that's that's in a lawyer's office someplace, and we're all sitting around asking them questions. And there is an element of danger there because people can be unpredictable, and, and that's a stressful event for them. Mm-hmm. When you start putting people under stress, the ability for them to do something surprising goes up considerably. So thinking about it from the law enforcement side or you know the federal, state, local, whatever, that's a little bit different animal. You know, you're in a position where... One, you're telling them you did wrong, you did, you know, you can't do this, or you, you know, you have to stand up on the sidewalk, you can't stand in the street. People don't like being told something as silly as that. People don't like being told what they can and can't do. So that is one of those pressures that causes people to react unexpectedly. 
And then you add the element of a law enforcement officer is in a position where they can take away that person's liberty. That's a big deal. And even if it's just, you know, I've had some very simple white-collar crimes that people reacted oddly to, you know, in what my estimation is oddly, because they're afraid of prison, they're afraid of going to jail, they're afraid of having to go through the system, they're afraid of the stigma that comes with it. And they might turn suicidal suddenly, you know, they might turn homicidal suddenly, but there is a very real danger. Somebody thinking that they might want to take the career path that I did, where they go and work for a local local police department, you've got to get through that first few years of patrol, too. And that's, that's a whole other level of danger. One of the people, I, I got to know her very well. She was, she was a cadet during the time that I was assigned as a cadet instructor at the Austin Police Academy. Her name was Amy Donovan, and Amy told me while she was a cadet that her goal was to work white-collar crime. That was the only thing she wanted to do in law enforcement. That was the thing that she really wanted to do in law enforcement. That was her goal, was to work white-collar crime. Amy graduated the academy, and she, she did very well, and she was working patrol chasing, I don't remember what it was, a car burglar or something like that, but she was chasing somebody one night and got run over and killed, and she never got to, to this assignment. You know, Amy's somebody that I hold very, very dearly in my heart because I wound up in the job that she wanted, and she and I graduated from the same university, and there's a scholarship now in Amy's name for people that are that are going through that that learning track up at Utica. So, you know, the the dangers are real. And I can tell you from a from a white collar crime perspective, one of the first search warrants I ever went on, I was still on patrol. It was a white collar search warrant. Mm-hmm. And the detective called, you know, we were just we were out patrolling. We were <laughs> actually my partner and I were probably having coffee at seven eleven. And we got the call saying, hey, meet these two detectives over at this address. And so we went over there and they said, well, this is going to be real simple. It's just a white-collar search warrant. And so we're going to knock on the door, talk to the guy, tell him we got a search warrant, and we're going to go in and get the stuff. And they just felt like they needed some uniformed guys there so that, you know, help them look like they really were who they said they were instead of just, you know, two guys in suits. And so we, we went to this house, and the four of us walked up to the door and knocked on the door, and the guy, the, the subject of the search warrant, he walked, you know, he opened up in front, opened the front door. And as soon as he saw who we were, he slammed the front door in our face and ran back in the house. Mm-hmm. So we kicked the front door in and right as the front door swung open, he was standing next to an open gun cabinet and ran further back into the house with, we didn't know what. And this may be the time that I actually came closest to shooting somebody because here we are, we've got an open gun cabinet, we're on a search warrant, we've got an arrest warrant for him, we know we're going in after him. And so we go in and we start going through the house and one of the detectives goes into a bathroom ahead of me and he comes out and he moves to the next door and I come up to the bathroom. As I'm standing in the door to the bathroom, which I was just told was clear, Mm -hmm. something, you know, the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I turned around and I looked and the shower curtain was still pulled closed. And I went over and I pulled the shower curtain open. Sure enough, that guy was standing in the tub. He didn't have anything in his hands, but, you know, it takes a few moments to recognize that. You know, my thought was he's armed. And I just came face to face with him. I'm standing there just right in the middle of him. And that's probably the closest I ever came to shooting somebody just out of the sheer surprise of here I was face to face with him, not expecting that. 
And that was just a simple white-collar search warrant. Other ones I've been on, let's see, I've, I've probably kicked in more doors on white-collar search warrants than I did this whole two years I worked in the fugitive office. Really? That's, yeah. Wow. Okay. People just see them. They think if they don't open the door, we're going to go away. And that's, unfortunately for them, not the case. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought that. And I, I guess I'm just very ignorant about it. But I, I thought it was more you show up and they go, oh, okay, talk to my attorney or you call right. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what you expect, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's my color. It's just money. Come on. Wow. Yeah. It's, and it's people are funny about money, though. I'll tell you what, you know, dealing with victims on these, on these cases, you know, they might have lost, you know, $100,000 to $200,000, and you'd acted like you, you, you killed their entire family and their dog the way that they behave, because they act like it's the, the absolute end of the world. And, and I get it for some of them. I mean, one, it's always traumatic, you know, that, especially losing that amount. Those are, those are big numbers. And, you know, I've, I've had it where I've seen it a number of times where the loss was the sum total of their life savings. Boy, I tell you what, I've, I've actually seen that more times than I can even recall, where they were left basically with nothing other than particularly for folks that are old enough to be on Social Security, a lot of times that's all they have left is Social Security. Wow. And, wow. you know, I've seen entire pensions go into white-collar schemes and go in where the money's gone. There's no restitution. You can get a lawsuit. You, you know, file a lawsuit and get a judgment, and you're standing there with a judgment and nothing to enforce it upon. Sure, sure. So it can be it can be very, very traumatic, and I understand that, but... At the same time, you try and put it, you know, especially for me, seeing it every day, it's, it's, you know, it's a little more clinical, but you try and put it in perspective and look at what you have left and what you, what you do have versus sure. what you've lost. Sure. Well, thank you. I, I want to make sure we painted a realistic picture of all this, and, and I didn't, you know, just talk about the, the excitement side, but let's, I guess that's, that's another version of excitement, but I wanted to make sure we covered that as well. I, I know some of our listeners listen at their desk while they're at lunch. And so mm-hmm. I try to be cognizant of the time that we do these interviews into. So I, I think we probably better get down to the end, although we could go on and on. This is interesting stuff. <laughs> thank, thank you, Billy. Thank you. That was my pleasure. Um, well, I have a few questions I end every podcast with. First of all, and usually the most fun, the easiest one is, what's been your proudest moment? Oh, you know, that's, that's a hard one for me. Oh. Uh, oh, yeah, I mean, okay, think about it. You, academy graduation, college graduation number one, oh. college graduation number two, retirement, getting listed on IMDB. You know, I'm, I got my name up there. Probably for me, and it's, it's un, unfortunately, it's not white-collar related, but for me, probably my proudest moments were when I was working on the academy training staff and, and watching my cadets graduate and go become police officers and, and then watching their careers and how those careers unfolded and the leaders that they've become. That, to me, is, is my proudest moment because these are people that I helped get to where they're at, and now they're going and doing things far greater than I ever could. That makes a lot of sense. Sure, sure. You're passing on your knowledge to the next generation, so to speak. That mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Well, tell us about a mistake you made on the flip side and, and what you learned from it, of course. And frankly, you know, the bigger the better. We like the big ones. Oh. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> let's see. 
Uh, most costly mistake, the absolutely dollar-wise most costly mistake was failing to put an oil bypass line back on a helicopter or connect it correctly and as a $500,000 turbine engine we had to replace. Um, you know, okay. Yeah, that, was, that might be the most costly, but, you know, that's one of those things. It happens. You know, other things, dropping out of college the first time, that was a big one. You know, that, think about it in terms of 1984. Four or five dollars versus going back to school after the turn of the century and paying for it in two thousand six dollars. Yeah, that was a that was expensive. Let's see what else. Oh, not traveling to Europe when I was eighteen. That was a huge mistake. Should have done that. Hmm. I'll tell you what. The biggest mistake that I have made, and it's nothing. It's nothing even cool or have any wow factor. Is failing to take time for myself and my family. I've spent. My entire adult life, working, trying to get ahead, and not taking time to enjoy now. And then I, my wife fusses at me because I'll have six or eight projects going on, and you know, four after hours meetings during a week, and she's like, "You're never home." I'm like, you know what? You're right. I'm never home. I need to take some time off. That's yeah. probably the biggest one. You know, just not taking that time. You know, well, that's a very appropriate insight to share on a podcast for accountants. So thank you, really. <laughs> You're saying there's not any wild factor, but we certainly can relate. So, well, uh, I know everybody yeah. who's doing tax can relate between February and the middle of April. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. But yeah, even in industry, I mean, in, in accounting, it's interesting. There's always more that you can do, but a lot of it really can wait till the next day. It so, can, yeah. and, and you know, and there's you can. Can I take on one more job? Can I take on one more job? Can I take on this next client? And the question I ask myself now is, if I take on this next client, how is that impacting the other three I've got in the pipe? Hmm. Because That's I've got to do a good job for every one of them. I owe every one of them my absolute dead level best, and I've got to be careful that I don't put too much on my plate so that they're not getting that. That's a wonderful way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. What am I taking away from the other people? Right. Good point. Well, I always like to end it on a high note. So before we, we close it down, what's the best piece of advice? Uh, this one's easy. This is an easy one. Hmm. Never stop learning. There is always something else. And just by virtue of people listening to this podcast shows a willingness to, to be open to learning something new. I've been to, good God, I don't know, probably close to 2,000 hours of CPE for different things. And so much of that CPE was just, you know, it was the window dressing, the stuff that's like, like the state says you have to have this, we'll go and suffer through it. Another two hours of ethics. What can I really learn from that though? And stop taking time to not criticize the instructors, but be critical of what they're saying and what can I learn from it and think about thinking about it critically. And then what's the next step? Okay, I heard what they have to say. What does the rest of the world have to say about it and going and reading? Yeah, yeah. You know, you can't stop thinking for yourself. And I've I've seen it over and over again. I've been guilty of it. I had an attorney that I would go ask him a question, be a simple question. I knew he knew it off the top of his head. And that attorney, his name was Blake Williams, Blake would not answer my question. He would turn around, he would pull a book out of the cabinet, throw it on his desk, he'd slam it down on his desk, and he'd start flipping through and he'd say, here's your answer. And he was t- teaching me to think for myself and not just go, go take somebody else's word for it. 
There you never go. stop learning. Yeah, that's that's good insight too because yeah, I take my forty hours of education every year and face it, there's some days you're more in the mood for it than others. And mm-hmm. but when when I sit there and think, well, what can I really pick up? Let's uh, from this. Let's focus on it. It's it's a much more enjoyable experience and. You know, you end up better off for it. So It is. And one of the classes that I teach for FINRA, you know, we go around different parts of the country and teach this one-day class. And I, I do the very last session, and my session is supposed to be interactive. On those days when the students are talkative and really talk with me and we work through this case that I give them, they learn and I learn. On the days where they're just quiet and don't want to interact, they don't learn quite as much, and I don't, learn, I, I don't get to learn anything. But, you know, I've done this for a long time, and I still get those students who's like, you know, throw something out there. I'm like, dang, I never thought about that. And so for me as an instructor teaching this, you know, all over the country, it's important for me to be open-minded and realize I don't don't have market cornered on knowledge when it comes to this stuff. I'm still learning. That's right. Yeah. There's always more you can learn. Definitely. Absolutely. Well, Well, thank you so much, Billy. This has been very insightful. I learned quite a bit myself and you think you know a few things and actually yeah there were some twists and turns thank you thank you very much (laughs) it's my pleasure i i enjoy getting to to visit with folks about this and just being able to to share the little slice of, of knowledge and insight that i have this has been good yes well if you could thank michelle again for me as well and i will i hope to get to meet you in person sometime sounds good come up and buy a cup of coffee all right thanks billy Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Billy Petty from Heyman and Associates. Like I mentioned in the intro, if you appreciated the information he shared, then please make sure and go back to Michelle Heyman's episode. You're really going to enjoy that one as well. Overall, if you've been enjoying the interviews, please take a moment to either rate us on iTunes or share us on whatever social media outlet you found us on originally. We have many other VIPs in the accounting world lined up to interview in the upcoming weeks. In the meantime, please visit us online at www.whereaccountantsgo.com for links to all the different accounting certification options, as well as jobs and events in the Texas area. Until next week, stay tuned. There's more to come.